I want to talk to you all about baptism um, and basically lay out the difference between the Presbyterian and the Baptist and uh, especially Reformed Baptist position here. I hope to do this in 30 minutes or less, and I do believe that I can show you uh, pretty convictingly <laughs> that, um, well, basically that the covenant, including now, the new covenant, includes believers and their children, and that baptism is a sign of the new covenant, that it is not a sign of faith, but it is a sign of the covenant. And in fact, most Baptists, Reformed Baptists in particular, already would agree with that. And so uh, that's where we're heading here. And I think that this will actually become clear as we go along here. I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and yet it wasn't taught to me carefully why we baptize children of believers, babies. And uh, I had to kind of, in Bible college, come to learn about that in my own study. I had a roommate that was a Reformed Baptist, and he had some Baptists and Presbyterians, so I had to figure out what I believe from Scripture. And that is what I hope to help you do now as well. I think that the reason many come, just, uh, come up just short of going all the way to uh, see rightfully their children in the covenant is because they do come out of a Baptist background. They maybe become uh, believers in predestination, right? The Calvinistic doctrines, uh, maybe even something of the unity of the covenants. They get away from dispensationalism, but they never quite get there on baptism uh, for one reason or another. I think they think it undermines election and predestination when it actually doesn't. It's actually an outflow of the teaching of election and predestination because God has chosen to covenant with households and so the covenant includes believers and their children and out of that yes some are elected unto salvation others are not but the covenant includes households and so we cannot equate covenant and election but that is what the Baptist often does but I'm going to demonstrate that that is incorrect here and I'm going to do that by going to Galatians chapter 3, first of all. Uh, and the reason is because I want to compare Galatians chapter 3 with Genesis chapter 17. Galatians chapter 3, if I can turn there, <laughs> uh, says the following. Going to verse uh, chapter 8. Galatians 3, verse 8, it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, why, why does that matter? What, you know, why, how does this, what does that have to do with anything with baptism, do you say? Well, Let's begin here. Verse 8 says that to Abraham, the gospel was preached. And what was the gospel message? It was, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So understand, the gospel message includes the teaching that, you know, the old kid song, Father Abraham had many sons, 
And many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's go praise the Lord. Yeah, I learned that as a kid at least, right? We are true children of Abraham by faith. That was true in the Old Covenant. That is true in the New Covenant. Now, how, how, how can that be? Well, how can we in the New Covenant be sons of Abraham if there were two different covenants? Well, there weren't two different covenants. There were different administrations of the one covenant of grace. We will all agree that there is one gospel. So if the gospel is being preached to Abraham when the covenant promised to Abraham is given, which is in you all the nations shall be blessed, as it says here in Galatians 3.8, then we can understand that that same promise and that same covenant is in effect today, now that Christ has come. How do we know that? What does Jesus say in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 at the end there? He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and in earth, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The Abrahamic promise, the promise God made to Abraham and you all the nations shall be blessed is fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus says that as he's ascending back into heaven, he's telling them to go forth and take the gospel. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. Then what does it say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them. Baptism is here. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And what was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? The Old Testament covenant was... Circumcision. It's fulfilled in Christ with baptism. It's one covenant of grace under varying administrations. Now, why did we go from circumcision to baptism? The short answer is a very profound thing to think about, is that Jesus had not yet come, and so the sign was bloody, teaching the people Blood would have to be shed to take away sins. The animal sacrifices were bloody. The Passover lamb is bloody. That's replaced now that Christ has come with what? The Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. Bloodless sacraments. So we have communion and baptism today. Communion corresponds as the counterpart to the Passover. Baptism is the counterpart to circumcision. They've changed and they're bloodless now because Christ has shed his blood once and for all to remove sin. And so we don't need the bloodshed any longer. And praise God for that. Now, we just connected, right, the promise from Abraham to Jesus. Jesus fulfilling that covenant promise. And that teaches us that it's the same covenant. Why is that important? It's important because the Baptist and the Reformed Baptist especially says that the Old Covenant was, a, was one particular covenant, but then the New Covenant is a different covenant. And on the surface, that may sound that way, right? New, we often would say that means something completely different. But if you go to Matthew chapter 13, or I'm sorry, not Matthew, John chapter 13, Verse 34, Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. 
Now hold on, is that new? Is that brand new? Is that I never heard of 11th commandment? Well, of course not. It's new qualitatively. And it goes on to say, I, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So what is new about this commandment? It's not a completely new commandment. The Old Testament, before Christ came, Jesus, uh, God commanded his people to love one another. What's new about it is that Jesus says, love as I have loved you. Never before until Christ had come, God comes down as the man, the God-man Jesus Christ, and lays down his life for his guilty, sinful people to redeem them from their sins. Never before has such a love been seen, that agape love. Jesus is saying, you love like that, like I am show showing you, and as I'm going to show you as I go to the cross. So it's a new quality. Well, the same is true with the new covenant. There's a new quality to the one covenant. That is how Jesus can fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic uh, promises in the covenant. In Christ, the realization comes that all the nations shall be blessed. That's why Jesus says, go therefore to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so baptism relates to the new covenant, just as circumcision does. And so for Presbyterians, we're saying very simply and straightforwardly, therefore, because in the old covenant, in Genesis 17, children of believers are baptized, or, I'm sorry, are circumcised. In the New Testament, children of believers are also to be baptized. So Genesis 17. This is, by the way, this is talking about Abram, and he becomes Abraham here. That's when the sign of the covenant is given. Well, the covenant promise is that to Abraham is that he will go into ultimately be a father of many nations, and they will go into the into Canaan, into into the promised land. Well, who actually fulfills that? It's Moses. And under Moses, you have the Israelites. Well, with Abraham, the Israelites are not even a nation yet. So my Reformed Baptist friends will say, well, the sign of circumcision was really just about you know an ethnic identity marker of the Jewish people. Well, that cannot be because the sign of circumcision was given before the Israelites existed as a separate people group. It's given here to Abraham and to his children. And it becomes national, if you will, when you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? But, but this, this predates uh, the Israelites, if you will, because it's dealing with, with, with Abram. And so that takes you know away that argument that circumcision was just something that had to do with uh, being an ethnic Israelite. Well, no, it, 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 it doesn't. It has to do with the covenant promises, the same uh, promises that are given to us in the new covenant today, that Abraham would be a father of many nations. And that is why, if you have faith, as Abraham had faith, as it says in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And then verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, right? And so you go all the way down to Galatians 3.29, it says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, right? Go back to verse 26 of Galatians 3, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Abraham had faith, then he was circumcised. As the new covenant goes out, it says, have faith, and then you'll be baptized. But what happened with Abraham? He was circumcised because he had faith, and then his children were circumcised. The new covenant, 
the adult has faith, and then his children are also baptized. There's a consistency here. The Baptist tries to say that, well, the New Testament indicates that you have to have faith first to be baptized. And I would say, okay, with circumcision, the whole covenant, you had to have faith first. The first instance is of Abraham, his believing God, is accounted to him as righteousness, as Galatians 3, 6 says, quote in the Old Testament. And then he is circumcised. But then also the male children are circumcised when they're eight days old. And so the Baptist, again, thinks somehow that uh, the fact that it says, you know, repent and believe, then you'll be baptized, that indicates that only those who are uh, adults who can have faith should be baptized. It doesn't indicate that because the same pattern is there with circumcision as well. And so if we're going to be consistent, we would also baptize our babies because that is how it has always been. That blessing of the covenant has always been there. And I should say... I should have said this sooner, but what is a covenant? A covenant is a bond in blood, a sovereignly administered. What does that mean? A covenant is a bond. It's something that brings us together. There's a marriage bond. When you marry somebody, you're entering a one-on-one -on -one bond and relationship to them, of course, culminated in the sexual union. Uh, there's a, a deep, intimate union that is there. Well, God was bonded to all of his covenant people in the Old Testament, yet many of them were cast aside because of unbelief. Book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament says, "Don't be cast aside like Hebrews because of unbelief," or "Don't don't be yeah don't be cast aside like the like the Jewish people because of unbelief." There's a parallel there. The point is, you can still be in the covenant and be an unbeliever even now, and you can be cast away and cast aside. The Baptist says, no, that's not possible. They go to Jeremiah 31, which we'll look at in just a second to, to argue that. But I want to point out Galatians uh, 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus uh, have put on Christ. In verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, how can we, by faith, be heirs according to the promise that was given to Abraham, if we're talking about one covenant in Christ and a whole different covenant uh, for Abraham. Well, we can't. So what's the reality? The reality is that it's one covenant, different signs. So what changes? The signs change. The covenant, in its essence, does not change because the covenant promises are the same. And we've already seen that, that nations will be redeemed. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will be redeemed. So God says that to Abraham, and you, all the nations, shall be blessed. Jesus fulfills that. I have authority, all authority, heaven and earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Okay, so there's continuity. There's not two different covenants. There's one covenant of grace. The Baptist says that the old covenant was a completely different thing from the new covenant. The new covenant in Christ's blood is completely a brand new thing, not a new quality, but altogether new, uh, and the old one is kind of like thrown away. But that just makes mincemeat of, of the scriptures here that we're looking at in Galatians 3 and so on. Back in Genesis 17, verse 7, God is giving Abraham that covenant sign of circumcision. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting 
covenant. So the covenant is between me and you, between God and Abraham and your descendants, his children and so on, after you in their generations, and it's an everlasting covenant. It has not gone away. It's the same covenant that we're in today. It's just under different signs, baptism now. To be God to you and your descendants after you, it says in Genesis 17:7. In verse 8, it says, Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And of course, that land ultimately is entered into with Moses. So the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they're not different covenants. They're different administrations of the one same covenant. And so we can say there's the Abrahamic covenant and there's the Mosaic covenant and there's the new covenant. But that does not mean that they're three different covenants. They're one covenant blooming and growing, going from seed form to full bloom to full flower. Um, you know, we can say it's a seed and it's a flower, but it's the one thing just growing. It's not two different things, right? That's that's kind of the, the correct idea of the covenants where the Really, the, the Baptist is saying the Old Covenant was one seed that tried to grow and couldn't, and so God got rid of that seed altogether and gave a whole different seed in the New Covenant. Or as we're saying as Presbyterians, no, the Bible's teaching us there's one covenant down through the ages that's, that's developing and growing. And that's why Jesus can fulfill the promises to Abraham, because it's the same covenant, the same promises different external signs appropriate to before Christ bloody signs teaching that we need a sacrifice to come to take away sins and then the new covenant that Christ has shed his blood bloodless signs of of what of Passover and the Lord's Supper or I'm sorry the Lord's Supper and um, baptism all right um Going on down in verse 9 of Genesis 17, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. So if you adopt children, they're part of the covenant family today. Praise God. You get to baptize them. They're part of the covenant family. They still must repent and believe to be saved, but they're part of the covenant. And the covenant promises to them. And so they are to be baptized. As Jesus says, go and baptize the nations. He who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now here's where it's important, I think, to today. And it's just not an academic exercise about whether you baptize your children or not. Notice what it says in Genesis 17, verse 14. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, we can discuss if that penalty still applies in the same way in the new covenant, but think about the seriousness of that, especially for my Baptist friends. In the old covenant, if your child was, if you did not circumcise your child, that child was cut off from the covenant and was a covenant breaker. That's very serious. So do not forfeit the covenant blessings that your child has. See them, recognize them. Bring your child to be baptized. Bring him before the Lord to be blessed. It's not work salvation. We're not saying that water baptism saves our children. We're saying that God has put his name upon 
our children because he's merciful. As Jesus takes little children, even the infants in his hands, and blesses them. Our children are part of the covenant people of God, part of the church. And so from that privileged position of being people, the people of God, we call them, repent, believe, trust in Jesus, walk in faith. But here's the problem. The Baptist thinks, in essence, that baptism is a sign of someone's faith in Jesus. It's not a sign of faith. It is a sign of the covenant. God sovereignly administers the covenant. A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. That bond, just like the man and wife in sexual union, we have a bond to the Lord. It's in blood. It's in Christ's blood. It's of life or death consequences. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. That means God predestines and elects and chooses, right? It's sovereign. He's the sovereign one administering or giving out this covenant bond. And I think those, I mean, I'm just going through the process like I did for myself. I was not reformed. I was not a Calvinist and believe, I did not believe in election until I was out of high school. And then I first learned it from more Calvinistic Baptists. And right away you go with election, you enter sort of the cage stage and you think, well, election is, you know, the spirit blows who wills. It, you know, it's not by works. And so if you hear, what, you're baptizing your children. So you think baptism can save them? You think that you can control the Holy Spirit, that, that you get to be the one who sovereignly administers salvation? Only God can do that. You can't be baptizing your children like that. That's not biblical, right? That's how we kind of think at first. But that's, but, but that's wrongheaded, right? It is God who sovereignly administers salvation, the blessings of the covenant, which is salvation, right? Then the question is this, who has God promised salvation to? In other words, who has God given the covenant and its promises to? Who has he held them out to? Who has he included in the covenant? Well, we just read it in Genesis 17. It's Abraham and his descendants. It's believers and their children. That's true down through the ages. In the Old Testament and the New Testament. It never changes. It never goes away. And that's a great blessing. It's not good for your children to be kicked out of the covenant. We don't want that. And it's really wrong-headed to think that Jesus, in his blood, would somehow lose children so that they're no longer in the covenant. Acts chapter 2, you have Peter preaching. And he says to them in verse 36, he says to the house of Israel, right? The Israelite, the Jewish people in particular, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, so what is the promise? It's the covenant promise, the same covenant promise that was in the Old Testament to re repent and believe. Abraham received the promise by faith. It tells us that in Galatians 3 and elsewhere. It wasn't by works in the Old Covenant. It was by faith, always by faith. The gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand, it says in Galatians 3. So it's the same gospel, the same covenant being proclaimed here in the New Covenant. Same covenant. What does Peter say in verse 38? Repent and let every one of you be baptized 
in the name of Jesus Christ, baptizing the nations like Jesus commanded Peter to do, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you'll be saved, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. So he says in verse 39, this promise, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So think, think about that. I mean, the Baptist tries to say, well, the promise is to you and to your children. It just means that, well, if your child believes, the promise is to the child. But that, that, that's saying you don't really understand the, what, what is meant by promise. The promise of salvation is held out to you and to your children. The promise of salvation by faith is given to you and to your children. And now the good news is also to all those who are far off, which means what? Not just the Jewish people now, but the Gentiles as well. So the Baptist tries to say that somehow, some way between the Old and the New Testament, our children were removed from the covenant. But here, right away, the first real gospel proclamation in the book of Acts, early on, you know, what, 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 what do we see here? Christ is risen, ascended back at the right hand of the Father. He tells Peter and the other apostles, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them. And, he, and Peter says it, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And who is this promise to? To you and to your children and to all who are far off. The promise is to the believer and his child, and to all who are far off. And, and the reason it's re relating all who are far off, right, is because, you know, we're addressing the men of Israel um, in particular here. Right? So um, they're all gathered at Jerusalem. If you go back in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, uh, there's Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And they're speaking, you know, there's different speaking in tongues and various things that are going on here, but they're all understanding each other, showing that in Christ there's going to be this, this pouring out of the Spirit upon all the nations and all flesh and saying, look, the, you know, the promise is to you, Jews and Gentiles, all gathered here from all the different nations. The promise is to you and to your children and all, and all to are far off, not just here localized in Jerusalem, but, but, but everywhere. And, and think about how important that is, right? In the Old Testament, to be near to God, you had to be near the physical temple, right? The tabernacle and then the temple. That's where God resided. But now the Spirit is poured out on all flesh and this promise of salvation is to every tribe and tongue and nation. But it's still also to the children, to you and to your children and far off. So the change has come not of removing the children, but, but, but that the gospel goes out to all the nations, and the promises to all believers and their children of all the nations now. So there's a greater inclusion of children because it's the children of believers from any nation. I mean, this is a great blessing. Uh, you know, hopefully that's, that's you know, pretty clear there in Acts chapter 2. Um, and so that's why this matters, because we don't want to forfeit these covenant privileges for our children by, you know, withholding baptism. Now, many Baptists do this thinking that they, would, they would be sinning if they baptized them. And so, we, you know, I'm not telling a person who thinks they should not baptize their child to baptize their child. They'd be sinning against their own conscience. But I am saying, study the scriptures here and see that you ought to baptize your child because it is a sign of the covenant and they, your child is part of the covenant. All right, so you may not be fully convinced yet, but we're about to get there. The old uh, proof text, 
for the Baptist is Jeremiah 31. This is the verse where everything goes awry for the Baptist. And this is where I want my Baptist friends that I really hope and pray are listening to this, that I hope by the end of this will be Presbyterians. <laughs> I do pray for that genuinely. But you listen very, very carefully. Jeremiah 31 is the ultimate text that the Baptist goes to to say that the new covenant is a brand new covenant that has now um, removed children from the covenant and in fact has removed everybody from the covenant who is not already regenerate. Jeremiah 31 verse 31 and on down says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, that I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Here's what happens. The Baptist takes this verse and says, this means, as verse 34 says, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. They say, therefore, the new covenant means that now that we're in the new covenant, Christ has come, no man is teaching his neighbor or his brother, and we all know each other from the least to the greatest. And therefore, everybody who's in the church, who's baptized, but isn't really born again, isn't really regenerate, they're not really part of the new covenant. Maybe even as Baptists, they've baptized somebody on a profession of faith, but their faith was not genuine, and so they fall away. And so the Baptists will say that person was never part of the new covenant anyways, because Jeremiah 31 says that plainly right here. That's how the, the Baptist takes Jeremiah 31. And so they interpret the new covenant in light of that interpretation of Jeremiah 31 everywhere in the New Testament. And so, again, my Baptist friends, I have to show you that you're just simply wrong to interpret Jeremiah 31 this way. And the way that we're going to do that is by letting God himself interpret Jeremiah 31, which he does in Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament. Now, I think everybody, Baptist and Presbyterian, will all agree that Scripture should interpret Scripture, that God himself should be able and allowed to interpret what he meant when he said something in the Old Testament. And so when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament and the New Testament says, here's what this means, we follow what the New Testament says it means and not our own interpretation. Well, if we all agree to that, then I think everybody listening to this is about to become Presbyterian, if you're not already, <laughs> because Hebrews 10 is so clear. But just a second before we get to Hebrews 10, just looking at Jeremiah 31 directly, I do just want to poke a few holes in it, even just looking at it the way that the, I said the Baptist takes it there. We still teach each other today. We still have pastors and teachers. Ephesians 4 talks about that. I will say, when Christ returns, then everyone shall know the Lord that's in the new covenant. Then no one will teach his neighbor any longer and say, know the Lord. And then all from the least to the greatest will know the Lord. Because I know when I go to Hebrews 10, you're going to see this interpretation that I'm going to give. You're like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. 
but I just still can't make sense of what Jeremiah 31 says about the least of them to the greatest of them. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you can understand the least to the greatest in a number of ways. Some Presbyterians, like Doug Wilson and others, say the least to the greatest is talking about the least of rank and the greatest of rank, the most humble, the most exalted, the pauper and the prince, that kind of thing. It doesn't mean every single last person, but it means the least to the greatest. And, and that, that could be. But I'm saying we all agree, Presbyterian Baptists all agree, that when Christ returns, that new covenant in his blood is going to be made up of true believers only. When Christ returns, everybody else that isn't really repentant and believing him is, is in hell, is cast into the lake of fire and judgment. And I'm saying Jeremiah 31 is referring to the new covenant after Christ comes again. But we don't live in that time yet. We live in the new covenant administration after the first coming, but before the second coming. But there will come a day when we live under the new covenant after the second coming of Christ. And at that time, the new covenant will be made up of regenerate only people. And that is what Jeremiah 31 has in view if you want to understand the least to the greatest, nobody teaching his neighbor. That's only going to be true when Christ returns. Right? So I just wanted to give you that in your head because once you get to Hebrews here, it becomes so abundantly clear, I believe, that that is just going to be like, wow, you know, and you're going to understand the covenant, I think, so much better. It, 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 it did it for me, and I'm, I'm convinced it will for you. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll go to verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, right? The author of Hebrews is talking about the animal sacrifices being insufficient. They were a shadow of the good things to come, that only Jesus can truly take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. And yet through them, the gospel was really preached, as we know, like again, back to Galatians 3 of Abraham, and that Christ fulfills that Abrahamic covenant promise because it's the same covenant from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, just under different administrations and different signs, from circumcision, now baptism, from Passover, now the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. All right? So Hebrews is making the point here that the, 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 the priest in the Old Testament ministers daily and offers repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But then verse 12, this man, but this man, that man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Now that... It's true salvation, right? From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Forever those who are being sanctified. That's going to be, that word sanctified is going to become important when we get down to verse 29 here. Now verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, and this is where he quotes, Jeremiah 31, the passage I just read that the Baptists go to about the new covenant, removing children and so on from the covenant. Well, again, I'm saying let God, the Holy Spirit, interpret Jeremiah 31 for you. And here, here's going to be given to us right here in Hebrews chapter 10. Quoting from Jeremiah 31, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 16 says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
Now, now, that was the quote. And now here's the interpretation of the meaning of the new covenant right here by the author of Hebrews. Now, where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Okay, now given all that, verse 19, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, given all that, therefore, brethren, brethren, he's addressing the brethren, those in the covenant, those in the church, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, the holy of holies, the inner sanctum, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, that'd be Jesus himself as our great high priest, right? Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see the baptism language, right? Bodies washed with pure water and sprinkled from an evil conscience. Also, again, indication of wise Presbyterians, when we baptize, we sprinkle. But I don't want to get sidetracked on that right now. That's not as important as what we're focusing on here. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Again, the covenant promises. God, Jesus, he who promised is faithful. So we've got to hold fast the confession of our hope. Remain faithful. Let us consider, it says in verse 24, one another uh, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So look, we still have to exhort one another. We still have to stir each other up to love and good works. We still have to do that. In other words, we still have to do what? Teach one another. Tell each other. Know the Lord. Encourage one another. Right? Because why? The day approaching is that day when Christ returns. It's only after that day that we enter our eternal Sabbath rest and we don't have to exert encourage one another anymore. And it's after the Christ returns, it's after that time that Jeremiah 31 is referring to when it says, they all shall know me from the least to the greatest. It's after Christ returns. We don't live yet in that time. Christ has not returned yet. Okay, so are we seeing that so far? Now let's continue. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Right? We've received the knowledge of the truth of the Son of God paying for our sins. If we keep on living in sin, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. But verse 27 says, A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation would indignation which will devour the adversaries all right here we are verse 28 and 29 these are the verses that if you're a baptist i believe if you listen to this and followed this it may change your life and you become a presbyterian once you hear this explanation so here we go verse 28 anyone who has rejected moses moses law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Now listen, do you hear that? Baptist, I, I'm sorry, but you guys, you can't make sense of these Bible verses. Because you're saying... You're arguing just the opposite of what Scripture is saying here. What is Scripture saying here? It says, look, those who set aside the law of Moses under the Mosaic Covenant, when the covenant was administered under the time of Moses, you die if you 
spurn God on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The author of Hebrews says, yeah, that's true. And now in verse 29, he's saying, how much worse punishment do you think living in the new covenant? How much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? That's Jesus. Count of the blood of the covenant. That's Jesus' blood, the blood of the new covenant, by which he was sanctified. It's the blood of the covenant by which this person is sanctified. And he counts it a common thing. And then he insults the spirit of grace. My Baptist friends, what this is telling us plainly is that you can be receiving worse punishment because you are in the new covenant and you have trampled the Son of God underfoot and you have counted the blood of the covenant by which a person has been set apart as as God's people. You've counted it a common thing and therefore you have insulted the spirit of grace. And it makes it crystal clear. It goes on in verse 30. We know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This is not talking about um, people outside of the new covenant. It's talking about the Lord's people. The Lord will judge his people. And some will be found to have trampled. Some of the Lord's people in the new covenant will be found to have trampled the Son of God underfoot and come the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the punishment is worse than it was under the Mosaic Covenant, under the Old Testament, when the sign was circumcision. Now that it's baptism and it's in Christ's blood, obviously, the punishment is all the more severe. That's why it says in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so my Baptist friends will say, well, it can't mean that. Because we saw in Jeremiah 31 that the new covenant is regenerate only. So whatever this means in Hebrews, it can't mean that. But my friends, it does mean that. And you say, well, that must mean that, um, they can't mean that, the Baptist will say, even the Calvinistic Baptist will say, because that means the person lost their salvation. And we know you can't lose your salvation. No, the Presbyterian, we're not saying that you lose your salvation either. We're saying that you have to have a category that you don't have as a Baptist. And that category is the same category that Old Testament Israelites who weren't true believers were in. They were in the covenant, yet they did not receive the promise and blessing of the covenant of salvation because they did not have saving faith. They were unbelievers. Well, in the new covenant, you can have those in the new covenant that aren't really born again, aren't regenerate, aren't true believers, don't have faith. And therefore, though they're in the covenant, legally, right, recognized in the covenant, in the church and so on. They're in the covenant legally, but they are not in the covenant salvifically, right? They don't have the blessings, the saving blessings of the covenant. But the covenant promise, as we saw in Acts 2, is to you and to your children. So the covenant promise is still held forth to your children. Hold the covenant promises to your children, but baptize them so that they are indeed given the sign and the seal of the covenant and hold forth the covenant promises to your children. And what are the covenant promises? I say to my children, Peter, Fletcher, you are a covenant child of God, and he has promised to you that if you repent and believe, you shall be saved from your sins. You are baptized in the covenant because you are born into a Christian household, and God has covenanted in his mercy with me, Thomas Boer, and you, my children. And in this house, the promise is held out to you to repent and believe, and you shall be saved. And it's on that basis that we baptize our children and hold the promises to them. Isn't that a tremendous blessing and privilege? Why would you withhold the sign of baptism? 
Why would you hold baptism, which is a sign of the covenant from your children? Don't do that. I know it's a misunderstanding, and I know that the Baptist blood <laughs> in in you is, you know, you're trying to erase, frankly, bad teaching that tells you, well, baptism is a sign of someone's faith. But it's not a sign of someone's faith. It's a sign of the covenant promises of God. Right? What does baptism indicate? The washing away of sins. Being identified with Christ and, and, and as his people. Right? That's what it is. Well, your child is, is born, identified as the people of God, into the church. But we're not saying that it means your child is born regenerate or born saved. But he is born with covenant blessings and uh, covenant privileges and covenant promises so that the promise of the gospel is held forth to them, right? To repent and believe and they shall be saved. Hopefully that makes sense. Hebrews 10 is interpreting Jeremiah 31 for us rightly. And I'm saying the Baptist goes to Jeremiah 31 and tries to interpret it from there when he should go to the fuller light of God's word of the New Testament here. And God giving us his own interpretation of Jeremiah 31, which teaches us plainly that you can have a new covenant member who breaks the new covenant, tramples the Son of God underfoot, and yet it doesn't mean he lost salvation. It means that he was never born again to believe to, to begin with. But yet he was indeed truly a new covenant member. And why does this matter? Because our children are part of the covenant, and there's blessings inside of the covenant. The Spirit is at work in the covenant. And remember, Genesis 17 said, if you don't circumcise your male child, he's cut off from the covenant. Well, what happens if you have children and you don't baptize your children? Are they cut off from the covenant? Do they forfeit blessings? Well, it certainly seems that that could be the case. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't ever be saved. Obviously, there's plenty of, baptized, uh, of Baptist children who aren't baptized as infants, and yet they come to repent and believe. But it is saying that we're withholding the blessing of the sacrament of baptism from our children, and we're failing to recognize that our children are part of the covenant and have certain covenant promises to them. And we don't want to do that. We want to, hold, to give our children the sign and seal of, of baptism and have that promise upon them to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to repent and believe in Jesus. That's what we want to do. And so come, come and embrace these great truths. You know, this is Presbyterianism. This is covenant. This is the gospel, right? Remember, the gospel is preached to Abraham. The gospel includes the promise of the covenant, which is to you and to your children. This is good news. And so I am encouraging my Baptist friends, let God interpret Jeremiah 31 for you and let him interpret it for you here in Hebrews 10. Let that be how you understand Jeremiah 31. Don't try to import a meaning of the Jeremiah 31 that um, contradicts how God interprets Jeremiah 31 here in Hebrews 10. That's the error of the Baptist position. And finally, I just want to go to a passage in John 15 to, to finally uh, give one more last bolster to this. Jesus in John 15 says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So think about that. Jesus is the true vine, and him is true life. And my Father, God the Father, is the vine dresser. He's the one who prunes and takes away and puts in, right? God sovereignly elects. The covenant is a bond and blood sovereignly administered, administered by the Father. And how are we saved? By union with the Son, Jesus, who is the true vine. 
So verse 2 of John 15 says, Every branch in me, in Jesus, that does not bear fruit, he, who is he? That's the Father, the vine dresser. He takes away. Are you following this? Jesus is teaching the same thing. You can be covenantally in Christ, but not bearing fruit. And so you're taken away. Does that mean you lost your salvation? No, it means you lost your covenant status, your covenant position, your covenant privileges. I know it's hard as a Baptist because I was like this at one point where I didn't understand this either. It's hard, but, but just follow the logic here. Uh, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. He takes out of the Son. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. The Father prunes so that it may bear more fruit, it says. And verse 3 says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we must abide, have life, and draw saving life from Jesus Christ. But there are some in the covenant, right, who are in Christ but aren't drawing life from him. They're in the covenant the new covenant, but they don't have true saving faith. And so they'll be cast away. It goes on to say, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You must be born again to bear fruit, right? But listen, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. Now you cannot be cast out of Christ without being in the new covenant because the new covenant is in Christ's blood and there is no way to have a relationship with Jesus apart from the covenant. That is in his blood. So these are people who, through being either born into the covenant by having believing parents or their covenant children, they were baptized, or by coming as adults outside of the covenant, not having believing parents, not baptized as the children, but coming by way of profession of faith as adults, they come into the covenant, but they never had true saving faith. And so that becomes manifest, and so then they are cast out and cast away in that great day of judgment when Christ returns. And only after that, when God prunes, the vine dresser prunes, the father prunes, only after that day of judgment will we have what the Baptists think of Jeremiah 31 as now, that will only be realized when Christ returns. Then we'll have a regenerate only new covenant because the vine dresser has finished his work. The father has finished his vine dressing and removed, pruned, all that offends, taken out of the new covenant, all that is false, all that is lying. The same thing is true in a lot of the parables. The parable of the dragnet says the kingdom of heaven. I think it's in Matthew 13. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is, you know, in the sea and it brings up good things and bad things. The bad is tossed out, but the good is kept. And there's many other parables that teach this. And once you see this, it like it's kind of like when you first see election and predestination. You begin to see how it's all through scripture and that children are included in the covenant. Um, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. That's cast out and cast into hell. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. That We could go on. But I, I really think if you listen and follow this, you will see that the Presbyterian position is true to Scripture, that children are part of the covenant. It's a great blessing. They've always been part of the covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and that is only one covenant. The Baptists are in error when they say that the New Covenant is brand new and completely throws away what was in the Old Covenant. It's not brand new. 
as one covenant blooming and growing from seed form to full flower is a great and tremendous blessing. Children are in the covenant. Baptize your babies. And let's see the blessings come as we raise our children in fear and admonition of the Lord as, they as we call them to repent and believe in Jesus. Thank you.